You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Kelly G. Barron. Uh, she's an associate professor at the University of Utah. And we've been talking about uh, behavioral sleep medicine and sleep research. So, Kelly, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah. So, tell me, um, why are you in the sleep world? What uh, got you interested in it in the first place? Well, I kind of came into sleep as an accident. I was just signing up for some clinical rotations. I was a health psychology student. And so, that's a field of psychology concerned with the psychological aspects of medical illness. And so I was interested in cardiovascular disease and stress and in chronic pain, a lot of different populations. And when I came into the sleep clinic, I just found it to be amazing. Not only had I not really considered how much sleep does for physical and mental health, but how it relates to all these different conditions, particularly cardiovascular disease. And so from a mechanistic standpoint, it was exciting. But this is also about 15 years ago when I got into the field, when it was really exploding in terms of studies about how not sleeping affects the risk for cardiovascular disease, for diabetes, for stroke, and that sort of thing. So it was an exciting mm. time in the field, but also it really kind of brought together a lot of aspects of health psychology that I really was interested in. And I think that sleep people are kind of fun. I know that sounds kind of funny, but in the specialty, okay. you know, you get a lot of people who are, you get neurology, pulmonology, all these people from different disciplines that are all kind of coming together to study this aspect of life. Right. So uh, what have you chosen to focus your research on? Um, I study two main areas. One area, I'm looking at how disruption of sleep in the circadian rhythm, the body's 24-hour clock, how that leads to development of obesity and diabetes. And so particularly, we've looked at how night owls tend to eat worse foods and why that might be, why they tend to gain more weight and have greater risk for diabetes. And it might not just be the social context of when you're eating late, but also people who are night owls tend to be a bit more impulsive. And so that combined with the fact that they're always trying to force themselves in, in the nine to five world, might they might be basically like an internal shift worker. And so we're looking hmm. at some of the mechanisms, both looking at the disruption of the body's rhythm in people who have late sleep times, but also looking at how that impacts their ability to regulate their appetite and their metabolic control. And so that's one area. The other area that I'm interested in is the use of wearables in, in sleep technology in the population because we've seen these devices just 
become so popular. You know, everybody is wearing the Fitbit, a Jawbone, you know, with things, et cetera. And um, they're really interested in tracking their sleep. And as a public health person, it's so interesting to me that people really want to know about their sleep. And I'd like to understand how we can use that interest and that drive that people have to understand themselves. If we can use that to improve their sleep and improve their health, that would be amazing on a population level. Um, but also, you know, we've studied the downside of those devices as well as how some people become more anxious about their sleep as a result of using them. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, quick definition. Uh, is there a formal definition of a lark versus a night owl? And are there other types of chronotypes? So there's, um, so chronotype, that's a great word. Now, it's your diurnal preference or your preference for, for activity and sleep timing, either being more in the morning or more in the evening. There's a bell-shaped curve. So most people are somewhere in the middle, and then there tends to be some people who are more in an extreme morning or extreme evening. You know, there's lots of different questionnaires, and there's different ways that they get described, you know, defined, you know, by a cutoff of a score. But it's really thought that it's a um, continuum. You know, it's this bell-shaped curve where there's some people who are very early, some people who are very late. I would consider myself to be a moderate morning person. I am really happy to get up at 6 in the morning, and without an alarm clock, I probably would wake up at 6.30, and I feel best getting things done first thing. Um, Other people absolutely hate the mornings, and they would prefer to do their projects and that sort of thing starting at 8, 9 o'clock at night. Well, the reason why I say it is I think it might be useful to have more distinctions. You know, like, uh, you know, someone that goes to bed at midnight and gets up at 8, is that a night owl? Or how about someone that goes to bed at 3 and gets up at 11? You know, three in the morning. Is that a night owl? You we know, also define it. They, we define it based on their. Do they eat differently? Their, you know. Yeah, they, we define it based on their preference because sleep schedules are oftentimes determined by our responsibilities, by work and childcare, and so so it's really the schedule you prefer to keep when you have no responsibilities. And for a lot of people, they're not able to live on that schedule. Well, right. I, like here's why. Um, you know, I've I've learn a lot about sleep and I've asked a lot of questions. Like for instance, myself, I go to bed at, you know, three or four and get up at 11 or noon. I've been doing it for like 20 years, you know, and I think anybody would say that's late. That would be universally late. Cause I mean, on average for a population, midnight to seven is the average preferred sleep time. Well, so the people are usually horrified when I tell them this. And then I hear comments like, Oh, you know, your cortisol will, will tend to uh, be at its peak at four in the morning. And so I wonder, you know, I go to sleep at very different times than probably a lot of people, but mm-hmm. but I'm into my hormones. And, you know, like you're studying how people eat if they're a night owl, but mm-hmm. maybe a, a three in the morning night owl versus like a, a midnight night owl does very different things. And maybe they have very different uh, problems with weight and other issues. You know, it just seems like it needs to be whittled down more uh, in order to really get maybe more effective research. I don't know. Well, our research, that's why we're measuring the biological rhythm and the alignment to your sleep schedule, because our research really would suggest that if you're a night owl who is allowed to be a night owl, you're better off than a night owl who's trying to force yourself into a nine to five schedule. And so we found that actually the later people were, the thinner they were. And that was mostly due to age, because younger people are, are generally later than older people. But we didn't. We found that the timing itself wasn't what was related to the dietary behaviors. It was the alignment of their melatonin and their sleep schedule. So people who were forcing themselves to sleep earlier in their melatonin timing had a 
greater meal frequency. So they're eating more frequently, they're eating more calories, and if they were overweight, they had signs of insulin resistance. So, you know, okay. so, so absolutely, we would say that, you know, being a night owl in itself probably isn't the factor. It was, it's probably the fact that a night owl has to for function in the morning. And so for, you know, clinically for some of my patients, you know, part of it is if they can sleep at a later schedule and they sleep better at that time, I would encourage them to do that if it doesn't impact their ability to work or, or those sort of things, because if you can be on your natural rhythm, then you're probably better off than somebody who's trying to force themselves at the time they think they should based on what society says. Yeah, I enjoy uh, sending emails to people at like three or four in the morning and them them saying, you sent me an email at three in the morning. <laughs> they, they, they feel like, you know, I never sleep, for instance, because my hours have changed. But yeah, I feel fine doing it and I've been doing it for a long time and I'm able to. So I guess I guess that's okay. But um. Uh-huh. You said you were studying, you know, again, why people eat differently if they're night owls. Do you have any insight into that? You know, what have you learned? Um, we don't know exactly why, but my suspicion is part of the thing that happens is that they're eating at different times if they're waking up later. So it's not a socially conventional time. And so we found that time and time again, and now on two studies, we found that night owls tend to eat more fast food. And that might be because they're either eating at a different time than other people are eating or they're they're starting later in the day and they're 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 grabbing it as they're going to other places. Um and the other thing is that um there's it's been shown that night owls tend to have more impulsive behaviors as well, you know, as a whole. Uh, it doesn't explain right. any individual, but um that also might relate to eating behaviors. And so that lack of inhibition might relate to eating more High calorie foods are eating more frequently. I think I think I might have some insight. You know, um, again, society wants you know if you have a family and stuff like that, they want you to eat dinner like when they eat dinner. And if they're not night owls, you'll tend to eat a meal, you know, anywhere from like six to eight p.m. regardless. And then if you stay up for another, you know, six or seven hours, you're you're likely to get hungry. So that's why you'd maybe eat again when maybe someone else wouldn't eat. The so thing I, that we found I think was I can see why. It was, you know, they had, they had, you're right, they had dinner, on average, people had dinner at the socially conventional time, and then there tended to be a little bit more eating in the evening, but actually there was a really long, there was a really long duration between when night all stop eating and when they go to sleep at night, like five hours, which for me as somebody who's an early person, I mean, there's probably two hours before when I stop eating. I probably eat at seven or eight or have a little snack, and then I go to bed at 10. And five hours seems like it would be a really long time, but I personally interviewed people with their food records, and they really confirmed that they were not eating for that five hours. Okay. That's good. Any, any other insights into why people eat differently if they're night owls? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like, so what are you doing in those in those hours after after everyone else goes to sleep? Is it boredom? Well, I'm working. It's, yeah, it's nice and quiet, and, you know, I'm working, and uh, yeah, I may be reading and doing things like that, so... You know, that could make you hungry and want to eat stuff. And, you know, if you're up late, it's very hard to, if you're going to go out, right, all there is is fast food. So I don't, I, I really can't go out because there's just junk to eat. So that limits your choices. So I'll have to eat at home. So, you know, I, I guess that's my, that's my experience, you know, but uh, they definitely get hungry. But uh, that, that's the reason I'm up late. That's what I'm doing and working, you know. I'd also say that sleep loss plays a role too, um, because a lot of people who are naturally late sleepers or night owls, they tend to have to get up and go to work at a 
normal time. And then during the week, they're really cutting themselves short on their sleep and then trying to catch up on the weekends. And so if they're mm. chronically losing sleep, then that may increase their appetite and, um, you know, affect their metabolism as well. Yeah, and right. If you don't sleep enough, you don't feel well. And the food you choose would probably just be more comfort food than like, you know, good for you food. And um, I've also heard your insulin resistance just goes to pot if you don't sleep enough. So probably all those factors uh, weigh in unintended to make people heavier if they don't sleep well and they sleep late. Mm -hmm. These are just speculations, but, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, do it doesn't affect everyone. You know, some people are late and super thin. And so, you know, just being late is not necessarily a recipe for being overweight. It probably has to do with several different factors. Okay. You know, lots, lots of things then, go into weight, you know? No, that's true. That's why I'm just, you know, speculating on what uh, maybe some of the actions that cause, uh, you know, the weight gain or lead to it's it. Also, so. It's also, um, we've shown that in, in the study that I completed of um, people with average and late sleep times, um, people who are late sleepers, in this study, the whole on average, these were pretty young, healthy Chicagoans who were really active. They were mostly taking public transportation, and on average, they were getting more than 10,000 steps a day. They were really active, pretty healthy people. But even among this healthy sample, people who had late sleep times still said it was harder for them to exercise. And when I presented these results before, uh, lots of people came up and shared their experience when I did my poster. And, you know, basically, people were saying that if you don't feel good exercising in the morning, then it's really hard to fit it in later in the day because you're tired and because you have too many competing things. And so, you know, in this sample, there was no difference in really how much they moved, but they felt like it was harder for them to get that in. Okay. Makes sense. Well, it's an interesting thing to study and there's a lot of factors. So, you know, and then um, you mentioned wearables. So um, Fitbits, et cetera, are there certain wearables that uh, you feel like are better at measuring what goes on during sleep than others? I guess the, the gold standard might be a sleep study. You know they're monitoring brainwaves and everything else, but you know for wearables, what's what's like the best that you've seen? Well, a lot of the a lot of the data is um, is not published in terms of wearables. You know a lot of a lot of the validation data out there um, isn't very good, and so um, the point with with that is the most reliable measure of sleep. How we define sleep is from the, from the EEG, and there was previously one. One consumer wearable that used an EEG to measure sleep called the Zio. That's not in business anymore. Um, and other devices now they use movement. They use um, some of them use heart rate or some other um, biological measures. And um, you know, to date, nothing's really been shown to have decent accuracy. Now that depends what you mean as decent. Now the National Sleep Foundation is um, working on developing some standards for what what they would say is good enough validation and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll be interested to see you know, what they think passes the criteria and what's good enough. But my question for that would be good enough for what? How accurate does it need to be? And so um, there's um, been one post or one paper presented at a conference regarding um, Fitbit that said that it was 70% concordant with sleep study measures of sleep staging. Uh, and, and on average, devices tend to be about 30 minutes or so off from total sleep duration. And, you know, that's a pretty sizable difference in terms of how we hmm. think about and measure sleep. Um, 
On the other hand, you know, we're using wearables to get people to increase their sleep duration. And, you know, for my purposes, as long as the number is going up and it's sensitive to change, then that's still a meaningful number, even if it's not precisely correct. So it can give people a sense of the directionality and the overall quality or lack of quality in their sleep. So is that, I, I guess think, it's good um, enough for most I would say um, I call them a time in bed monitor <laughs> overall that it can, they can really, for the most part, pick up when you lay down and when you get up. But in terms of what's happening in the night, they're still not very accurate at knowing really at that time period, are you awake or asleep? Now, this is probably getting better over time, um, but it hasn't been independently verified or published how much better it's getting. So I'm, I wouldn't really be comfortable to say how accurate they are at this point because I haven't seen any independent data. Um, but you know, likely with using other measures like heart rate, things can be more accurate, particularly for picking up REM versus non-REM sleep. Um, the thing that as a population level concerns me is that, or even as a clinician, that patients will come in and they'll show me their graphs from the, their devices and say, um, what does this mean? Or I'm not getting any deep sleep. And, you know, for a lot of devices, they're really not very accurate at knowing w whether you're in light sleep or deep sleep. And then not only that is, well, what does that even mean? Does it mean that there's something wrong with their sleep? And, and many times it really is not interpretable. Uh, that it means that there's anything wrong with their sleep. And the yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, is how patients perceive the data as, as absolute, or it sounds like they do. They perceive it as, oh, something's wrong with me if it, if it shows something. My sense is that people do tend to believe this data. And the reason why is because, you know, you're also not able to know what's going on because you're asleep. And so, you know, all you have is your sense of what you remember happened in the night and then also... You know, no one can feel what it feels like to have REM sleep, really, or, or, or that sort of thing. So, I mean, people really have no choice but to believe these because the, the pictures are pretty and they um, think that might be what's going on. Um, I mean, in, in my case, I've been wearing, I've been tracking my sleep for the last couple of years as I've been doing this research. And a lot of times I feel like it's a fairly accurate picture of what happens overnight. Like I, I, if I've had a long period awake, it'll show that or that sort of thing. There's some, but there's also some nights that I feel like I slept very poorly and it says the numbers are fine. And then there's other nights where it says I slept terribly and I felt fine about that night. So I'm not really sure what to make of that. Now, on the other hand, I have learned about myself that if I don't go to bed before 1030, I never have the opportunity to get the amount of sleep that I think I need, which is around seven hours. Now, Obviously, I could probably just do that by doing the math in my head, but it really does help me to see the numbers to say, oh, look at this, three nights in a row, you're getting six hours of sleep when you think you should get seven. Like, this is a good reminder. I got you. Makes sense. Um, how could devices improve how they measure sleep? You know, even though they may not exist right now, what could devices do to get a much more accurate picture? Well, on a bigger picture, I'm really curious about how how people can even use this data. Like, what does it matter to me how much RAM I get? I really don't, I, I'm really curious about, you know, what's the benefit of this data versus the drawback? Or, you know, how much does does this monitoring even change people's behavior? Or is it just kind of an interesting phenomenon, that, of kind of the quantified self, but do people really want to use that data to change them? Now, um, in the future, you know, they're working on uh, oximeters and other sort of things. And, I mean, if you can imagine if um, people could be alerted to their sleep apnea status, that could be really amazing for public health if it was accurate. 
Um, you know, other yeah, sort of uses could be things like, you know, alerting people if they're unsafe to be driving or or things like that. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of public health implications, but the accuracy needs to improve for some of these things. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, what, what are your, um, the, you know, the people you interact with that wear these devices, what do they say they do about it when they see certain, you know, they ask you questions, but if you ask them, okay, well, what kind of, you know, data have you gotten from your device and what have you done, how's behavior changed because of it? Well, most of the people I see are in the sleep-wake center where I'm seeing them. They're coming in for, for having a sleep complaint. And so for those people, they're oftentimes buying the devices because they're worried about something with their sleep. And then they're coming in and showing me the data and expressing their worry over not getting enough deep sleep or having too many awakenings or questions about how much REM sleep they should be getting. So in, in that case, it's kind of just confirming to them that they're worried that there's something wrong with their sleep. Um, in our research, we're using devices to get people to understand their sleep patterns and um, to set goals for sleeping more. In particular, we're really interested in getting people to avoid bedtime procrastination. And that's defined as you know, not wanting to interrupt doing something to get yourself to go to bed. You know, I felt that, but I, I don't know if it's just that. I've also felt like um, there's a time I'm supposed to go to sleep. And sometimes I find like I find myself, you know, wasting time to get to that point. And then I, it's like an alarm clock. Okay, it's 3 a.m. That's my quote-unquote bedtime. I got to go to sleep now. Do you see any other behaviors that are, you know, called sleep procrastination? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, people oftentimes just feel like they need some more me time or they kind of get sucked into binge watching something. I know for me, like I tend to work out, uh, I tend to work too late sometimes. I'm working on my laptop till maybe nine o'clock or nine, and it gets to 9.30. And if I'm trying to go, to go to bed at 10, I just feel like I need a little bit more time to wind down or, or I haven't gotten that time in the day. So I'll watch a show and then I'll like watch the news or something, you know, and, and I should really just stop and go up to bed and, um, you know, be better off putting the laptop away at a certain time and then, you know, nine o'clock and then reading or doing something more relaxing to get ready for sleep. And so it's really, in some ways, it's a self-regulation issue. And the other side, some of my participants have really taken issue with the term bedtime procrastination because they're like, I'm not procrastinating. I just have two jobs and I'm taking care of kids and I'm a single parent and I just don't have the time of the day. Like I literally don't have the time to go to sleep. And so unlike me who just watches an extra show or something like they're like actually doing something that they can't avoid doing. I've heard of um, one lady told me she would set an alarm to go to bed. And she said that seemed to help. You know, you set alarms to wake up. Why not set an alarm to go to bed? Some Some of these devices do have an alarm to go to sleep. And, um, I think it's a good idea. Okay. So what's, um, where is all your research and everything headed, you know, over this next year or so? What do you want to figure out? Um, so we're currently conducting a study looking at how sleep loss and circadian alignment interact to affect metabolism and appetite regulation. Because the research that we've done before has really isolated the circadian component. But we know that in real life, people who are late sleepers and are subjected to circadian misalignment by forcing themselves to go to work, we know that they also have sleep loss. So we're looking at people who are subjected to this on a daily basis in their everyday life and how that relates to their eating behaviors and things like that. Um, Also, 
looking on the wearable side, we're interested in developing behavioral interventions using wearables because we just know that people like to see their sleep. It's something that's fun. So if we're going to change sleep and get people to sleep longer, we should do it in a way that's fun, in the way that people like it. And so we're looking at using this type of sleep optimization intervention in people who have different types of chronic illness um, or are at risk for sleep loss because of their profession or, or things like that to see if we can incentivize them to uh, improve their sleep and then improve their health or performance. Have you seen Napster a good tool or a useful tool or, or is it the same time constraint problem for them? Naps are an interesting topic because naps can be quite useful for people who don't have the ability to get an, a, a good enough night of sleep because of their um, because of their schedule or for shift workers. So naps can be really important and even they could save someone's life if they're drowsy and driving. But on the other hand, um, napping, if done incorrectly, can interfere with sleep at night. And so for most people with insomnia, we really discourage them from taking naps because if they compensate for poor sleep by napping, then it's going to disrupt their sleep at night. On the other hand, for certain populations, naps could be hugely helpful. And those include things like people who have narcolepsy or people who have shift work or other chronic illnesses. Um, I've seen patients who have like Parkinson's disease, for example, and the medications make them really sleepy and their sleep is disrupted at night. And taking a 30-minute nap in the midday should not affect sleep at night. And um, it can help boost their performance in the afternoon. Yeah, you know what's an issue with naps is like, I guess, you know, if you sleep longer than a certain period of time, let's say 30 minutes, then you could wake up, you know, stupefied and have, I guess, what they call sleep inertia. You know, you feel mm -hmm. groggy and you're you're falling all over the place. But when you lay down to take a nap, the problem is how long does it take you to fall asleep? So if I want to nap for 20 minutes, how do I set my alarm? You know, do set, I do 20 minutes 30. plus 10? <laughs> It's set it for 30. I mean, if you don't fall asleep within 15 minutes or so, you know, then it's likely you didn't need you didn't need sleep. Um, although, you know, there's a lot of cultures who've had siesta, for example, and that's part of that's part of the daily daily schedule. But then usually dinner, you know, like in Spain, for example, dinner and bedtime are, are later because of it. Hmm. Right. You know, these sort well, of like I just hot cultures. Like, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe I feel a lot of sleep seems to be very psychological. You know, oh, I, I can't sleep, and I'm laying down, and I hope I'm going to fall asleep. And then I worry, and then I don't sleep because I worry, and it's like this vicious cycle. You know, standing with naps, oh, I hope I don't oversleep. I hope I the alarm wakes me. I hope I could fall asleep because I'm really tired and I want to nap. You know, all those things boil in to make napping difficult. Yeah, you can't you can't try to sleep. If you feel pressure to sleep or anxious about it, then it's much harder. It's hard to say. You know, don't think of the pink elephant. You know what I mean? Don't try to sleep. Just sleep has sleep to be and you something. Will. Sleep has to be something that comes over you. It's not something you can force. And part of treatment when people have insomnia is just accepting that they don't have full control over whether they sleep or not. I mean, your body is gonna eventually. Your body will sleep if you've timed it right and you've improved mm. the circumstances. But even sometimes when you do everything right, you still don't sleep well, and you can't fully you can't hack your sleep fully. You know, you really can't fully control all the factors. And you do get a lot of people who are very exact people who try to orchestrate their life. You know, their workout is at this time and they're running things on a perfect schedule and this sort of thing. And sleep just doesn't fall that way. And the more that you yeah. try, oftentimes it will elude you. 
Yeah, I've had it, you know, usually I'm okay, but sometimes I've had to tell myself, you know, you've fallen asleep for, you know, 40 plus years. Why would you not fall asleep now? And that helps well, me. Part to of it too right. is you're, you're right. One night of poor sleep is not going to, is one night of poor sleep is not going to derail everything that most people right. can, most people can compensate pretty well. And, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people have, test anxiety or, you know, the night before you run a marathon or that sort of thing. And, and they found that people actually do. They get up even after a couple hours of sleep and they can compensate and get through it in the short term. And mm. so that's what I try to remind my patients about. Okay. In fact, any, by, the time uh, they, any, by the time they come, they come to see me, they're totally pros at coping with sleep loss. I wouldn't recommend it in the long term, but at least they don't feel as stressed about it. Oh, that's good. Okay. So, um, you know, and, and besides or in addition to wearables, any sleep trends you're seeing over the past few years? I think a really great sleep trend is that that people are becoming more aware of of their need for sleep and that that it's perhaps becoming less of a badge of honor to be somebody who can function without sleep. Now, I, I work in mm. medical centers and so, you know, everyone around me um has been through you know, doing night call and 24-hour shifts and, you know, all kinds of things in the hospital. And, you know, they're all keenly aware of it, um, of, of the impact of it on their performance. Um, and it's something that's talked about and, and thought about in training and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think in the general culture, um, not a lot of people had thought about the importance of sleep for their health until the last couple of years. And so it, it's good to see that people are attempting to put sleep on the radar in terms of things that they should be doing for their health. And then um, and then also it's becoming less of the trend that, that going without sleep is considered to be a badge of honor. Hmm. At least in my, yeah, I, don't know yeah, if you, I don't know if you've seen that, but at least that's what I've seen. I, I've seen some people say that, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've seen the effect lessened, but you know, you're in touch more with you know, sleep-deprived or sleep-problematic people. But um, I've, I've heard people say it, you know, or sleep is for the week or I'll sleep and I'm dead or... You know, stupid things like that. <laughs> I, I hope there's less of that. I certainly would hope that. Mm-hmm. So, I think right. part of it's too been um, been some some uh, some people in the media and um, popular figures have made sleeping more um, to be a priority in their life. And I think in setting that example, you know, the one that comes to mind the most is um, like Ariana Huffington mm-hmm. and her advocacy for sleep. And then um, there's been quite a few athletes that. Um, promote their sleep, like um, Lindsay Vaughn, for example. Yeah, no, that, that's excellent. Well, very good. So what's the best way for uh, for listeners to get in touch and to ask questions or maybe if they're in your area to come see you if they need help? Um, well, I see patients at the University of Utah Sleep Wake Center. And then, um, okay. you know, I'm listening. And if, uh, you know, they have questions or they want to, uh, you know, if you have any resources available on a, on a website or, you know, results of your research, uh, where can people go to find out more um, about you? We have... Um, we have the sleep medicine program. I'm I'm still in the process of putting up the website and everything for my program. I've only been here a few months, um, but the okay. sleep medicine program has a um, has a website here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40. I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. 
Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.